Thanks, gentlemen. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing this morning? Great, great. Hey, great, great, great. We have uh, special guests here this morning that um, they're not here for the first time. They've been here several times before this, but we have kind of a running joke going. I just found out late yesterday that they'd be here. And he swears that every time he comes here that I'm talking about sex. That's a, he swears that that's the case. Every time he's come, it's been in the middle of a marriage series, and we've been on that particular subject. And so he asked me if I'd be speaking on that today. And uh, unfortunately, I couldn't find any way, shape, or form to fit that into the passage we're going to look at. So, but I did dig up a story that I thought he'd appreciate and you would appreciate as well. Appears that a farmer loads his pigs onto the back of his pickup truck to take them to a stud service. Said when he gets there, he asks the man at the stud service how he's going to know whether this actually worked or not. And the man at the stud service said, listen, in the morning, look out the window, and if the pigs are rolling in the mud, it didn't work. And if they're rolling in the grass, it worked. So he gets home, the next morning he rushes to the window, looks out the window, and sure enough, these pigs are rolling out in the mud, meaning it didn't work. So he had to load them all back on the truck and take them back to the service again. So he takes them back, and the next morning he rushes to the window, looks out again, and he looks out, and sure enough, they're rolling in the mud again, loads them back on the truck again, takes them back to the service. He does this for six days straight. Finally, so frustrated by the seventh day, he, he tells his wife, he says, look, I don't even want to go look out there. Go tell me what they're doing. She goes out to the window and she sa he said, are they, are they rolling in the mud? She said, no, they're not rolling in the mud. He goes, oh, great, are they rolling in the grass? She said, no, they're not rolling in the grass either. He said, well, what are they doing? She said, it's the strangest thing. They're all sitting in the back of the pickup truck. <laughs> anyway. Hope you feel comfortable. That's as far as we're going to get in that subject. I get it. Oh, okay, good. I'm so glad because if you didn't get that, it's going to get tougher before it gets easier now. I'm telling you right now. Recently, we had a friend who uh, was visiting with us from out of town, and he was in Southern California on business. And uh, he gave us a call, and he wanted to have dinner with us and to uh, spend the evening before he returned back home, and he lives on the East Coast. So he came by the house, and, uh, and we have a kind of relationship that he felt comfortable enough that he could let his hair hang down, kind of, and share with us some of the things that were frustrating him. And he just wanted to basically unload and vent. So we spent basically the night together just sharing with each other. He was opening up. He was talking about some frustrations that he was going through. And what was interesting and fascinating to me was that this is a man who had worked hard all of his life. He had worked hard all of his life to achieve the things that he had achieved. And uh, he achieved, he has achieved fame. If I mentioned his name, a majority of people here would know who he is, and that's not as important as who he is as to what he had to say. He achieved fame, he amassed a fortune. In the last eight years, we figured that he made almost $10 million. Now, to me, you know, that may not be much to you, but to me, that's a fortune. So he had that, his beautiful and talented wife. He has everything that money could, could buy, basically. And there was one thing that became very apparent in our conversations together with all the fame that he had and the fortune that he had amassed and all the material possessions that he ever wanted that he had the access to go out and get. There was one thing that was curiously lacking in his life. And you know what it was? It was joy. He had everything but joy. That peaceful, content celebration of life. That understanding that, you know what, there's a purpose and there's a plan for everything. That God is in control 
and I'm right where I'm supposed to be at the right time in the right place doing the right things and you know what when you know that you have a contentment and a peace and a satisfaction that that just basically forces you to smile there is nothing like it on the face of the earth everything that this world had to offer he has at his disposal and he doesn't have any joy but the most telling thing that he said in our conversation was this a man who has worked hard to achieve all of his goals it's obvious that he would feel this way but he said this you know what after our conversation and, and a long period of time together he said finally I said Chuck you know what I guess I just have to work harder at being happier I guess I have to work harder at being happier how many of you have ever felt that way we come and we're talking about this whole subject of joy right this attitude to have and you walk out of here and you think you know what I need to work harder at being joyful I just got to work harder at this this isn't gonna come easy now I'm gonna have to work hard then I'll have joy in my life some of you are at that point it's like man you know we're over halfway through the series and you're thinking to yourself you know I, I've heard a lot of good stuff but I don't feel any more joy in my life I'm trying this in fact I'm getting more frustrated trying it than I would if I wouldn't have heard it and wouldn't have tried it I like being miserable and if I don't like it I like make sure people around me are okay can you please listen to this as carefully as possible if joy is achieved by hard work and long hours then the most joyful people on the face of the earth should be workaholics right now do any of you know a person you would classify as a workaholic is joy a term you would use to categorize their life I don't think so I've never met a workaholic whose joy ever balanced their intensity for living not yet probably never will some of the most miserable people that I know are people that work hard to achieve things and you know why that is one theory is this human achievement results in earthly rewards which fuels the fire for more achievements leading to greater rewards you follow that human achievement results in earthly rewards which fuels the fire for more achievements leading to greater rewards it's a catch-22 as we accomplish things and we're rewarded for it we realize we're rewarded for our achievements and accomplishments and because we like the reward we're gonna go after bigger and better prizes and on and on it goes now some of you especially the, the high achiever is thinking well what's wrong with that that's how I got to where I am that's how I achieved the things that I achieved I mean that, that, that what's wrong with that the problem is simple none of it results in lasting satisfaction contentment or joy that's what's wrong with it in the process of achieving more and earning more lasting joy is never realized we get frustrated we're miserable as Solomon says the wisest man who ever walked the face of the earth he says that you know what chasing after all of these things is vanity it's like chasing after after soap bubbles and there was a man that earned it all achieved it all had all that anything that this world had to offer he had all of it and he said it's all vanity it's futility it's frustration and when I grab a hold of that soap bubble it breaks I'm gonna go find a bigger soap bubble 
Maybe eventually I find a soap bubble so big and durable that it won't break when I touch it. He says it's impossible. Joy is not a result of some external achievement or circumstance. Listen carefully. Several studies have been done recently. I ran across an article in the Orange County Register, and the study said this. The study shows that winning the lottery, for example, influences the sense of well-being for only about three months. Interesting. And it goes on, it says, researchers have something to say to people who think a lucky event like winning the lottery will bring them happiness. They say, not necessarily. Events in life, whether good or bad, have fleeting influence on long-term happiness, the research shows. It says, the things that occur in your life affect your momentary, weekly, or monthly mood, but they do not change you forever. I was talking to a friend, we had a little self-test, ask yourself a question. Is there ever a job that you wanted so bad that you thought, if I had that job, when I have that job, I'll be satisfied and content for the rest of my life? That's the prize, that's the one I want. You ever said, if I only made so much money a year, if I could just make that much money, then I'll be content and satisfied and I'll have joy in my life and, and that'll do the trick for me? And you get that job and you make that money and you realize that that's not it either? You buy the new car and you love the smell and you start to realize after a while that the smell is exchanged for other smells? And that, that momentary joy or happiness that you have is, is now gone? I think there's a lot of validity in what they're saying. Three months at best. It'll change your attitude for three months at best. I like what one woman says. She says, uh, Evelyn's her name, of Citrus Heights. She's an avowed optimist and lottery winner. You say, well, obviously she's an optimist if she won the lottery. But she said this, years ago she discovered she had cancer. She said, I wanted to be able to raise my daughters and was told that might not be the case. People said, aren't you asking why you? And I replied, why not me? But with the grace of God and good doctors, I'm still here. Said a few years ago, she won the lottery. People asked me, why you instead of me? I said, why not me? <laughs> I know somebody viewing my life from a distance prior to my winning the lottery would wonder, why is she so happy? What does she have to be happy about? She said, well, I had two wonderful daughters and we did the things that made the unhappy or stressful periods not as devastating as they might have been. She said, since winning the lottery, nothing atrociously bad has happened, she said, but added laughing, I still can't lose weight. The lottery doesn't change everything. I like that. See, joy is a choice. Joy is a choice. It's an attitude. And throughout this whole series, what I've been trying to tell us, it's a mindset. But it's a mindset that has nothing to do with our external circumstances and conditions around us. It has nothing to do with an event that takes place outside of your life. It has nothing to do with good things happening to you so then you can have a better attitude about things. It has nothing to do with bad things happening so then you have an excuse to be miserable. Joy is an attitude, it's a choice, and it has to do with the change that takes place from the inside of our life and manifests itself to the outside. And it's something that only God has the ability to do. Only God can change a human heart and change a person forever. Not three months at a time, not one week at a time, but he can change you forever from the inside out. And so as we go through this, we need to recognize that, you know, one of the things that we don't like to hear is that, you know what, that's what it's gonna take. Because there's something within every one of us that, that likes to be stroked. We like to have attention. We like to be motivated and we like our efforts to be noticed. 
That's why they make all these different awards. That's why we have things like, you know, bronze plaques, gold medals, impressive trophies, silver platters. I mean, all of these things. We get all this, the salesman of the month, you know, we get this award that we can hang on the wall, or we get a letterman's jacket that we can walk around the high school with, or we get some other achievement that we can look at so people can look at us and say, hey, aren't you special? Didn't you just accomplish something? And we hang them on our walls at our office and certificate after certificate of achievements so that people can look at us and say, you're special. There's something different about you. And we go on and on and on, you know, and we get better pay and promotions and greater recognition and all these things. And every industry has it. Every industry has the carrot that people run after. If you're in the entertainment industry, look at all the different awards that are being given out. The movies give out an Oscar to keep people chasing the carrot. The television industry gives out Emmys to keep people chasing that carrot. The music industry used to have the Grammy Award, now it's got 2,000 other awards to get people to chase after the carrot that couldn't catch the other carrot. I mean, and on and on it goes. It's amazing. You know, if you're a writer, they get the Pulitzer Prize that you can chase after. Every industry has an award system so that we can chase it and we can achieve it and we can attain it and we can reach greater heights at whatever level it is that we're at today. And it's interesting to me because, you know, we chase that because we like, some, something within us likes to be around celebrities who have achieved these things. I love this story, true story, listen to the story. Tourist was standing in line to buy an ice cream cone at a thrifty drugstore in Beverly Hills. It says, to her utter shock and amazement, who should walk in and stand right behind her but Paul Newman? She said, well, the lady, even though she was rattled, she determined to maintain her composure. She purchased her ice cream cone, turned confidently, and exited the store. However, to her horror, she realized when she got outside that she left the counter without her ice cream cone. So she waited a few minutes until she thought the coast was clear, went back into the store to claim her cone. As she approached the counter, the one that, you know, has a little trays on with the little things in it, she noticed there was no ice cream cone there. And she went up to the counter and she was looking for the ice cream cone and she couldn't find it. And just then, she gets a tap on the shoulder. She turns around and guess who it is? It's Paul Newman. And he says to her, ma'am, if you're looking for your ice cream cone, you put it in your purse as you're walking out the store. <laughs> Oops. Oops. It's amazing what people will do. Oops. While well, sitting in the Great Western Forum watching the Laker game once, I was looking at all the banners that are hanging there, and you see all the numbers that are retired. And you see, you know, Baylor and Abdul Jabbar and. Chamberlain and Magic Johnson, and you see their, their shirts hanging from the rafters. You go to a place like An Anaheim Stadium, and you see Ry Cruz's number out there, and, and uh, Bobby Knopp, and uh, uh, Nolan Ryan, and some other people. <laughs> um, but, you know, you look at that, and you go, man, isn't that great? Isn't it amazing, you know, how, how great people are and how we recognize one another and we reward one another and we look at that and say, wouldn't that be the greatest thing if you were a basketball player to have your jersey hanging there at the rafters or the forum? And, 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 and I guess what I'm trying to get across is this. There is nothing wrong with any of these things. Absolutely nothing wrong with any of them. In fact, we all need incentive. Uh, we all need encouragement. 
We all need a reason to, to try harder, to achieve things, to, to push ourselves to our limits, to do the best that we can do. You know, there, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But, but the problem is, is this. That system is a system of earthly people who are rewarded for earthly achievements and accomplishments. And it's easy to forget that none of these accomplishments will ever give any one of us a lasting sense of satisfaction, contentment, or joy in our life. And the most important thing of all of it is this. And none of those earthly achievements that are rewarded by earthly goodies will ever earn God's favor. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But we need to understand something. All of this is leading to one of the most important topics, discussions, conversations that we'll ever have with one another. And I believe it's necessary to address it at this time. Having had my conversation with Mr. High Achiever, and uh, for years struggling myself with a similar battle, I recognize that high achievers are in a very dangerous territory and wrestle with a very real temptation. And you know what that temptation is? It's a temptation to believe that earthly honors will automatically result in heavenly rewards. It's a temptation to believe the humanistic type of philosophy that says this, by working hard and accomplishing more than most, I will earn God's favor and gain his nod of approval. And it is a lie from the pit of hell. Earning more, achieving more, earthly achievements is not going to get you one step closer to heaven than the person who doesn't have one certificate or plaque on his or her wall. And we need to understand that. It's extremely critical and important that we recognize that. Because what happens is, we buy into this mentality, and the world has bought into it. Ask people, ask somebody around you, hey, if there is a God and there is a heaven, how do you get there? I gotta work my way there. Somehow or another, I gotta get there, I work my way in. You ask them, what do you gotta do? Why, well, I, I gotta, I, I know, should probably go to church. Yeah, probably should get plugged in somewhere there. How many times you gotta go? Well, I don't know how many times you think I have to. How many weeks are there in a month? Four? If I go three out of four, I'd be batting 750 baseball. That'd be awesome. Oh, okay. Well, what else you got to do? Probably should give some money away to somebody. You know? Uh, how much? I don't know. What's the national average? 1.5%? Oh, I can, I, can, I can double that. Now you can throw in another percent. I'll get it up to four. Oh, what else you got to do? I don't know. You go through this long list of things and see what happens is this. We buy into this philosophy that, you know what? I can work my way and gain God's approval. I don't need him to do anything for me because after all, God helps those who help him or herself, right? Second Opinions, chapter 2. <laughs> I work my way in and I don't need God. And if I do enough good stuff, 
then I'm going to find joy. Why do we do this? Why does that happen? Take a deep breath, listen to me. You're all going to hate to hear it. One word. You know what it's called? Pride. Pride. I can do it. I can earn it. I can achieve it. I can overcome whatever it is that God says I'm lacking. I can do it myself. And the bottom line of all of that is simply this. It's pride. And pride always comes before the fall. Listen carefully what one man confesses. He says, work has always been highly esteemed in our family. And hard work was seen as the primary tool for success. I figured if it were good to work 10 hours, it would be better to work 14 hours. In college, I seemed to have the energy to withstand the pressure. I remember times at Stanford when I wouldn't even go home at night. Instead, I'd push a table up near the door of the cafeteria at 3 o'clock in the morning and sleep on it using my books as a pillow. Then in the morning when I had to be at work, the first person to open the cafeteria door would knock me off the table. I'd wake up, start the day. I convinced myself that I was sleeping faster than anyone else. It says, during the years when I was a coach and area director for Young Life, I would work 12, 14, even 15 hours a day, six or seven days a week, and I would come home feeling that I hadn't worked enough. So I tried to cram even more into my schedule. I spent more time promoting living than I did living. My life wasn't abundant. It was a frantic sprint from one hour to the next. It says, I can remember times when fatigue left me feeling isolated and alienated, alienated, feelings that previously had been foreigners to me. Unprepared for such parasites on my energy, says I became frustrated and laughter, which had always been my most treasured companion, had silently slipped away. I was dominated by shoulds and ought tos and musts. I would awaken unrefreshed in the morning with a tired kind of resentment and hurry through the day trying to uncover and meet the needs and demands of others. Days were not lived, but they were merely endured. I was exhausted trying to hope, trying to hope be a hope constantly rekindled for others, straining to live up to their images of me. I'd work hard to develop a reputation as one who was concerned, available, and involved. Now I was being tyrannized by it. Often I was more at peace in the eyes of others than I was in my own eyes. The Western mind and culture leave little time for leisure, prayer, play, and contemplation. Hurry needs answers. Answers need categories. Categories need labeling and dissecting. The pace I was trying to maintain had no time for rhythm and awe, for mystery and wonder. I barely had time to care adequately for my friends or for myself. And in order to keep up my incessant activity, God was simply reduced to fit into my schedule. And I suffered because he did not fit in. Let that soak in for a minute. And I suffered because God did not fit in to my schedule. You know what's fascinating about that confession? The friend that I spent the evening with, you know what he said at one point in our conversation? He said, Chuck, everything and everyone was put on the back burner for my career and for the organization that I work for. And that organization decided not too long ago that he didn't fit into their future plans. He was disillusioned. He was disappointed. He was frustrated. 
and he was angry. And why was that? Because he set himself up for the fall. Everything and everyone, including his relationship with God, was put on the back burner so that he could achieve, so that his goals could be met, so that his desires will be fulfilled, so that his dreams and his efforts and his agenda and his will and his plan would be first. And as a result, he had no joy. Oh, by the way, there's always one, another t telltale sign when pride takes charge. And you know what that is? All the fun and living leaves. All the fun and living leaves. A driven high achiever may smile on occasion, but it's surface, it's a surface grin. It's not a quiet, deep understanding and satisfaction. There's always more to do, there's always more to achieve, there's always more, 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 more. And that's one telltale sign when pride has stepped in and taken over your life. I've got to do it. Really? I like what G.K. Chesterton said. He was never more correct when he wrote this. Madmen are always serious. They go mad from a lack of humor. Interesting. You say, man, I'm pretty depressed about right now. <laughs> yeah, is there any hope? I'm a high achiever. I like to achieve things. I like to accomplish things. I've always been a driven person. I've always set goals. I've always gone after it. Nothing wrong with any of that. Don't misunderstand me. You don't set a goal, you'll hit that every time. You know what I mean? I mean, you've got to have goals. But the important thing is we need to understand something. There is hope and there is joy for high achievers. And where we're going to find it is back in our study in the book of Philippians, chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, in this particular session, is going to give us basically an open, transparent confession on what his life was like as a high-achieving Pharisee. This man set goals and he accomplished them. This man had trophies and he could have filled a number of trophy cases. He had every award the religious industry had to offer. He had it all. <clears throat> he achieved it all. He had them in his trophy case and he came to some conclusions about that particular lifestyle. And in this particular passage, he shares with us basically three things that we need to understand as far as a priority system is concerned. In Philippians 3, 1 through 7, we read this. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And what he's doing is asking this question. As I went through it, I thought, you know what he's asking me? He's asking me this. God's saying, hey, Chuck, what's important to you? What's really important to you? Achievements, awards, monetary possessions, recognition, fame. I mean, you know, I'm sitting with this friend who thought all these things were important and he received all of them and he's miserable. He's saying, if he's miserable, won't you too be miserable? What's important to you? What's your priority system? What makes you tick? If you had a choice to make, what would come first in your life? 
And he's going on and he's going to share with us a, a new way to look at our priority system. And I want to share with you three things. He shares, number one, what's important in terms of a present attitude. He shares what's important in terms of a present attitude. Look what he's saying here. He's saying, finally, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He say, it's as if to say, you know what, I want to sum up everything that I've said to you so far in this letter. I'm going to sum it all up. And I'm going to sum it up in a simple phrase that you can understand and take with you forever. It's this. Hey, to sum up everything... As far as joy is concerned, as far as attitude is concerned, as far as choosing joy is concerned, how do you do it? Let me sum it all up. Rejoice in the Lord. Later, I'll say this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'm going to say it. Rejoice in the Lord. You say, what in the heck is he talking about? He's talking about this. Rejoice in your job. Eh, doesn't work. It'll let you down. Rejoice in your fame. Eh, not famous anymore. Rejoice in your new car. Rejoice in what? What do you think you're going to rejoice in that's going to produce any sense of lasting joy or satisfaction? But he says this. Rejoice in the Lord. And you notice what he says? And I'm never going to get tired of telling you this truth. I've written it to you. I'm going to keep writing it to you. And I'm going to keep reminding you. Now here's the way I think of this. It's obvious that it's not something we do without being reminded to do it. I'm going to tell you once. I'm going to tell you twice. I'm going to tell you a million times. And I'm never going to get tired of telling you this. Folks, rejoice in the Lord. You rejoice in anything less than Him, you will be disillusioned, disappointed, frustrated, and miserable. Rejoice in the Lord. Say, so, but how do we do that? Well, we already know why we should rejoice in Him. We already know what He's done for us. We already know how He's left heaven and He came to earth. He took the form of a man and being made an appearance of a man, He humbled Himself. And he took on a cross and he died for our sins. And he rose again. He defeated death. He defeated sin. He defeated that gap, that separation that we had between God and man. We can now get to God through Jesus Christ. We can rejoice in him always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice in the Lord, because that's the only place that you ever find lasting joy and satisfaction. He's the only way you ever have your life changed from the inside out. It's a position. We need to recognize it and we need to understand it. He says, rejoice in the Lord. That is our safeguard against disillusionment. A person's priorities will be revealed by what makes them happy. And remember that circumstances produce temporary happiness at best, but a relationship with the Lord that's founded on Him, we can rejoice in Him, will change your life forever. Will change your life forever. And he's going to say, oh, well, you know what? If you don't believe me, here, let me, let me share some things with you. So it's not only is he sharing something about our present attitude, and that is keep our eyes on the Lord and not on our circumstances and not on our achievements and not on our plaques and not on our awards and not on our bonuses and not on our raises and not on our new cars and not on our parking spaces and not on any of that stuff, but rejoice in the Lord. Keep your eyes on Him. But he warns us that there are going to be some joy bandits that are going to come into your life and my life and they're going to try to take that joy out of our life. 
and they're going to try to take your eyes off of what Jesus Christ has already done for us. And they're going to try to get us to look at other things that they're going to say are going to produce joy in your life, and they're not going to. And so he says this, in terms of personal associations, here's what's important. Number one, it's a warning. He says, hey, let me warn you about some things. Let me warn you about our, your associations with people, people that come close to you and they have an influence in your life, people that can affect the way you think. The people who are closest to us are the ones that affect the way we think the most. If you've got people in your life that are always negative and just drumming that into your head, I'll tell you what, you're going to become a negative person. They're going to be the ones that influence the way you think the most. Because if I don't know you, I don't really care too much about what you think. But if you're close to me and you come and share something with me, I'm going to listen to you. So we need to guard ourselves and be warned about people that become close in our life, that are the people that are our counselors that we turn to for advice and for help. And so he's saying, look, what's important in terms of personal associations, let me warn you about some people. This is kind of the danger Will Robinson territory. And that is this. He says, beware and watch out. Now listen to me. Three different types of people that are going to come into our lives. Number one, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for men who do evil. And watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. Watch out for those dogs. Take them one at a time. What in the world is he talking about? Watch out for the dogs that come into your life. Now, we're not talking about Fido and Spot and all the rest of them. You know, you know the little cuddly dog that you have that jumps up and sleeps in bed with you, and I never will understand that. <clears throat> but that's between you and your dog. You know? There's a dog licking toilet water and then comes up and gives you a big lick on your face, and you think that's a pretty good idea. I don't know, but whatever. But he's not talking about that, although I'd watch for that if I were you. But, but that's a whole different subject. He's talking about watching out for those dogs, people that he calls dogs. Now, you need to understand something. In this culture, dogs were not very domesticated creatures. They roamed the streets in packs, and they were dirty. They were disease-ridden. They were scavengers, and they'd just rip you apart sooner than looking at you. He's saying you've got to watch out for people who are like that. Isaiah 56 gives us a little insight. Isaiah said, His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, they love to slumber. What Isaiah was warning the people about was, watch for those people who would say that they have a message to you from God and they want to comfort you with the message when they should be warning you with the truth. And what was happening to the false prophets in the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom had already fallen captive, and these false prophets were coming to the southern kingdom and saying, hey, don't worry about it, everything's okay, everything's cool, it's going to be okay, hey, don't let anything bother you. And he's saying people that withhold the truth from others are dumb, filthy, disease-ridden dogs. We need to know the truth. We need to be told the truth. We need to understand something. We've got the same problem in our affluent society today where we've got a whole bunch of people who want to be comfortable in where they are in their life. They want to be comfortable. Paul warned Timothy that there would be people that would tell them what they want to hear. They want their ears tickled. They want to feel good about themselves. We go on vacation, we want to stay at a comfortable place. We want to have a comfortable hot shower. We want to wear comfortable clothes. And you know what? And we want to find a comfortable church where people will make us feel good and comfortable exactly where we are. 
I've had people that have come to this class, they don't like the fact that I am necessary, well, I'm a little bit too blunt. One couple said this, said, you know what, you, you never really say anything that's comforting. <clears throat> you don't, it's like, it's not comfortable. Oh, oh. You know, and then I stopped, and listen to me, listen to what I'm about to say. And I found out later that the people, this one particular individual, this gentleman, <clears throat> was looked at by people who did business with him as a thief. He was slime. He was, you know, pond scum. In the minds of the people who dealt, why well, not? Oh, gee, that's so harsh. Hey, have you ever dealt with a thief before? That's the nicest thing I could come up with. <laughs> Pond scum. But anyway, and he thought that I knew what his business dealings were like and that I was trying to say things to him to, to hey, that guy did not need to be comfortable. He did not need to be comforted in the fact that he was a lying, cheating, thieving, pond scum in person. He needed to be warned that he needed to stop cheating people. That's what he needed. I have never in my life, just so you know, in case you kind of share something with me or whatever, I've never in my life, ever, ever, nor I ever will, except for the joke that I did today, I will never, ever, I will never direct a message toward one individual in my life. Never have, never will. And the reason for it is this. I really believe this. If there's somebody out here who needs comforting, God knows you need comforting, and he will comfort you in your affliction. If there's somebody out here who is comfortable and needs afflicting, <laughs> then God will afflict you in your comfort level. You understand what I'm saying here? And the reason I say that, that's why I love to do a book study. You know why I like to do a book study? Well, you got people go like this. Oh, what's the topic over here today? Oh, it is? Okay. Oh, Philippians 3. Oh, that sounds more like a Bible study to me. What's the, what's the topic over here? How to love life. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> and you know, you get to the point where it's kind of like you just go like this. You know, I love a book study because we get to this passage, and you know what? Whether you like it or whether I like it, it doesn't really make much difference, is what it says. If you need comforted, comforted God will comfort you. If you need afflicted, God will afflict you. Please never forget, I am just delivering a message. I did not write this. This is not my stuff. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's it. It is not. And so what happens is, here comes the truth. Whether you're ready for it or not, it doesn't really matter. In Isaiah's day, they're saying, oh, we don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that we're going to be taken over by our enemy if we don't confess our sins and repent before God. We'd rather not hear that. We'd rather hear that everything's just going fine, thank you. How many of you saw the movie A Few Good Men? Okay, so you don't think there's a problem seeing R-rated movies. See, I've never seen it. Ha, <laughs> just kidding. Ah, <laughs> just kidding you there, just pointing little leggy. I saw it. Okay, I saw it. I just saw an excerpt. <laughs> No, I saw it. But do you remember this scene when Jack Nicholson's character was in the courtroom and Tom Cruise said, I want the truth. What did he say? 
You can't handle the truth. You don't want the truth. You want to feel good about yourselves. You want everything that you're doing in life to have a stamp of approval and say, that's okay, you do what you want to do as long as you're happy. We all want that nod of approval, that recognition that we're okay. But if we're not okay, we need the truth. Because it's only the truth that'll set you free, and it's only the truth that'll lead you to lasting joy. We need the truth. You know, what's really sad to me about America today is that, you know what, I think, Tom, I think Jack Nicholson's character's right. We can't handle the truth. We don't want the truth. I wonder if a politician could ever be elected in this country again who stood on the platform of, I'm just telling you the truth, I'm telling you the way it is. And you don't like to hear it, and I don't like to hear it, but the truth is going to set us free as a, pre as a people, as a community, as a church, and as a nation. The problem is, we don't have any politicians that want to stand on a platform of truth. What we want is a bunch of people will send out feelers and get polls and surveys to find out what truth do these people want to hear. And that's the truth we're going to give them, because that's how we're going to get elected again. And after we're elected and we're out of office and everything goes to hell in a handbasket, we're still going to get our severance pay and I'll still have my, social sec my, my uh, secret service agents watching me and I'll still have my secretary and I'll still be getting my monthly stipend of 40000 or whatever stupid amount it is for the rest of my life and I don't really care! Fooled you. And then we come to church and we don't even want to hear the truth here either. We don't hear, oh, it's okay. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. And one day we're all going to wake up and reap what we sowed. Watch out for the dogs who don't tell you the truth. Watch out for the evildoers. You know what an evildoer is? It's the person that says this. You know what? You can work your way to heaven. You work long enough and you work hard enough and you do enough good things, I think that's what's going to put you in. That'll make you right with God. Evil workers, telling people they can earn their way to God's favor. Mutilators, the false circumcision, they're the people that say this, you know what? If circumcision is good, castration is probably even better. And every guy just grabbed a very sensitive area of himself. Like, oh, what in the world are you talking about? Well, see, what happened was this. When the gospel was preached and they said, hey, all you've got to do to be right with God is believe what he says about Jesus Christ, that you receive him. There's no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. We already saw that from chapter 2, what Jesus did for us, how he conquered sin, death, and the grave, and that he can make you right with God if you just believe what he did. So what they did was they came along and said this, okay, yes, you, you need to receive Jesus Christ. You need to believe what he's done for your sins. But you know what? But, but you haven't been circumcised, so it's Jesus plus circumcision. Oh, Jesus plus what? Here's the mutilators in our culture today. If going to church once is good for you, then going to church twice on a Sunday is better. If going to church twice on a Sunday morning is good, then you go to the evening service, and that's even better yet. If you give 5% to the church now, that's good. If you give 10%, that's even better. And if you give 20%, God's going to give you some plaque somewhere. 
And that's what's going to make you right with God. If you fast one day, that's good. If you fast 40 days, it's 40 times better. If you read the Bible five minutes a day, that's good. But if you read it eight hours a day, that's even better. And work your way. That's the mutilator of our day. And let me tell you something. Anybody that tells you that is a liar, is a mutilator of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of God that says this, Jesus, 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 and nothing else. That's it. Not Jesus plus anything. Jesus plus anything equals salvation? No, Jesus, period. That's it. Now listen to me, because some of you get really, the high achievers get really ticked about right at this point. There's nothing wrong with going to as many church services as you want. There's nothing wrong with reading the Bible as long as you want. There's nothing wrong with giving away as much money as you want. There's nothing wrong with fasting and praying and all those things, and you do as much as you want. But you do it because you want to do it, not because you think you have to do it in order to maintain some type of approval by God. That's not going to meet God's approval. You may grow through it. You may learn through it. You may build other people up through it. You may benefit yourself and those around you. You may worship God and give Him glory through it. But if you're going because you think you're earning something that somebody else isn't earning because they're not doing what you're doing, you are nuts. You're mistaken. And some of you don't want to hear this because you've worked hard all your life to get where you are and you think you're going to be able to do the same thing with God. And he's saying, nah, I did it all for you. And you just better believe it. Because if you don't, it ain't going to get you anywhere. You know, it's sad because we look at all these things and we realize, look what he's saying here. We are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus alone and nothing else, and put no confidence in our flesh or in our achievements. I've been made right with God because I believe what he says about Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter how many classes I teach, how many Bible studies I've taught, how many chapel services I've done, it doesn't make any difference because that's not what's making me right with God. I believe what he says and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the last thing he said is this. He says, you know what, some of you are thinking, oh yeah, oh yeah. See, you don't want achievements to be part of our relationship with God because you've never accomplished anything in your life. It's no wonder you don't want to place any weight on human effort or achievement. You've never done anything. It's no wonder you're saying, hey, you don't have to go to church three times a day because you only go once, maybe sometimes twice. You don't go three times like we do. It's no wonder that you're saying these things because you don't do what we do. It's no wonder you don't want the lineup based on batting average because you can't get a hit to save your life. It's no wonder you don't want scholarships based on academics because you got a 1.6 GPA. See, that's what people are thinking here. And Paul's saying this, you know what? Let me tell you something. Let me tell you what's important in terms of past accomplishments. You're saying to yourself, hey, let's, don't forget who you're talking to here. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. You know what? If there's anybody on the face of the earth that could boast about past accomplishments, Paul said, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. Look at everything I've done. Look at my resume. Look at my credentials. Look who you're talking to. 
If there's anybody that could boast about past accomplishments, it's me. And you know what? When we come next week, we'll find out what those accomplishments were. A couple things in closing. You want to safeguard in your life? You want to guard the joy that God's put in your heart? Then you rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice in Him and in Him alone. And you guard that joy and you protect it from those no good dirty dogs who you want to tell you what you want to hear. So in a lot of ways, we're just as guilty to allow them to do what they do. If we don't test what they say against the truth, then that's our fault. If we want to feel good about ourselves, then that's our fault. If we leave where the truth is being presented because we don't like the truth and go somewhere else, that's our fault. We need to take personal responsibility for that. But if you want to guard that joy in your heart and you're confronted with the truth of the Word of God and you need to be afflicted in your comfort level, then I say this, man, we need to confess our sins. And we need to turn from what we're doing that's wrong and we need to do what's right. And you talk about enhancing your joy, God will do that. We need to protect ourselves from people who will try to have us believe that we can work our way into God's acceptance because we can't. What more can you do or I do that Jesus hasn't already done? And we need to protect ourselves even as people who put our faith and trust in Christ from mutilating the gospel, the pure, simplistic message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, by laying a guilt trip on people around us who aren't doing what we think they should be doing. We are mutilators of God's truth and His grace when we try to teach anything other than this. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away and all things become new. Don't distort the truth of that simple message by tacking on a whole bunch of stuff that we think people should do. God says, you just trust me and you believe in my son. If anyone will receive him, to them he gives right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And that's simple, and it's truth, and it's life-changing. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time to be together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for the fact that as we've received Christ, your spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And as your truth is spoken, your spirit living within us says, Amen, that's right, now do it. God, we just love you for transforming our lives. We love you for doing all of it and requiring us to do nothing. We love you for the fact that it's Jesus and him alone that saves us from sin, from damnation, from the eternal consequences of hell. And it's through Jesus and him alone that we can one day enter the presence of God. And we just thank you and praise you in his wonderful name. Amen.